The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the your the information about your business into one dashboard this is incredibly valuable netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management inventory hr into one platform and one source of the truth about your business with netsuite you reduce it costs because netsuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required access from anywhere you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. I'm a little bit nervous about releasing this episode because in the past 13 or 1400 episodes that I've done, I've always released the episode. Like I would have a guest on like, I don't know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Tyra Banks or Sarah Blakely. I would, I would have a guest on and that would release the episode. But this is the one time that after the episode was recorded, I made a decision where I'm not going to release the episode. And there's a lot of reasons why, some of which you'll figure out when you listen to this. But this guy recently was in the news again. Now, this one was recorded a couple of years ago. This guy was recently in the news again. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. just announced he is running for president of the United States for the Democratic Party against Joe Biden. And a couple of interesting things. First off, in the podcast, I asked Robert F. Kennedy Jr., why aren't you president already? Because his uncle was president. His father ran for president. His other uncle was a senator and ran for president a gazillion times. He's had cousins who were governors, congressmen, and on and on. His brother was a congressman. Again, his whole family. I mean, the Kennedy family is like the royal family of America. And, you know, it's interesting. One time 
I was talking to a financial advisor who supposedly, and I have reason to believe this is true, was managing the Kennedy family trust money. And he said to me, guess how much money the Kennedys have? And I said, I don't know, 30 billion. I was just guessing. And he said, no, over a trillion dollars. And so it made me think there's probably a lot of families out there that have just been compounding money for the past hundred years as the Kennedys have. And it's just, you know, a few billion turns into a trillion over time and they get all get all the best deals of course and make money on all things that regular people can't make money on so that's why none of, you never see any of them broke or complaining about money but none of them seem to have regular jobs either that's why they can afford to do the things they do but robert f kennedy jr running for president it's very interesting the answer he gave why he wasn't president and i'm not sure i at this point now that i believe the answer he gave and i don't know what to think about him running for president, but Jay, I know you're not up on American history, but do you know of other instances where a father, son, or members of the same family became president? It's uh, George Bush and... Uh... Yeah, all right, so George Bush and his son, George W. Bush. Yep. Do you know of any other father? So that's one father-son combination. There's one other father-son combination that became one. president, do you know who? Uh, well, we talk about Kennedy, but that's not father and son, right? That's well, only one Kennedy became president. Oh, right, right, but right. But you're right. The Kennedys look, and also Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s father did not become president. Just a little bit of history. So in 1968, Lyndon B. Johnson was president. Lyndon B. Johnson, of course, became president when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and Lyndon B. Johnson uh, was running for president in 1968. But in the New Hampshire primaries. He did not do well. He came in, I believe it was third, and he decided, you know what? I'm not going to risk my political future, and I am going to quit running. And so he did not run for president again in 1968, and it became a battle between Eugene McCarthy and Hubert Humphrey. And then at the last minute, Robert F. Kennedy, the father of today's guest, Robert F. Kennedy jumped into the primaries and he won California, I, I forgot what day, I think it was like June 13th or June 14th, and 1968, and he was gonna clinch the Democratic nomination, and that day he was assassinated. He was shot mm. leaving the Ambassador Hotel after making a gracious you know, winning speech uh, after winning the California primary where he clinched the Democratic nomination. So he probably would've been president. He probably would've been the Democratic nominee and then beaten Richard Nixon in 1968 and become president but he was assassinated instead. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son, talks about that and talks about also seeing his uncle assassinated, John F. Kennedy. But there's so yes, I know. So Bush, I hmm? sorry, I just want to say that I know the other answer for it. It's John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Yes, you're right. Did you use ChatGPT <laughs> or something called Google to figure that out? I did not use Google, but in fact, I actually used ChatGPT. Ah, it's interesting because I've been planning on doing an episode about this. Like we always say, oh, this election was rigged, that election was rigged. You know, so many elections have been rigged apparently, but there was an election that was rigged specifically, which was 1824 when John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams became president. And in 1824, what happened was it was John Quincy Adams versus Andrew Jackson versus a couple other people. And in order to become president, you have to win more than 50% of the electoral votes or else the House decides, the House of Representatives. So Andrew Jackson won by a huge amount the popular vote. He won 
by a huge amount, the Electoral College, but he did not get 50% of the electoral votes, even though he was trouncing John Quincy Adams. He got many more electoral votes than John Quincy Adams. And so it went into the House. John Quincy Adams called up. Well, he spoke to, there was no phones back then, but he spoke to his good buddy, Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House and kind of controlled the House. He said, listen, you vote, you make sure I'm president and you get to be Secretary of State. And so John Quincy Adams became president of the United States. And right after Henry Clay became secretary of state and Andrew Jackson was really upset because he really won that election. And so in 1828, nobody could stop him. He became president of the United States and John Quincy Adams. This is the only time this has happened. Also, he was a president of the United States who then basically lost, you know, he he didn't become president again and he ran for Congress again and won, and he became a congressman for the rest of his life and died actually in the House of Representatives, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, like actually sitting there in the middle of a vote. So those are the two father-son combinations. And there's also a grandfather-grandson combination. Does ChatGPT know? I'm sure it does. Okay, I'm going to try to find out. Who is the... Uh, who is Grandfather-grandson. Grandfather-grandson. I'll give you another clue, but don't use this in ChatGPT because it'll give away... The, the grandfather was the shortest serving president of the United States ever. President. Meaning he only he only served as president for about a month. A month? He, Is that even possible? He got sick. You know, they used to have the an, inauguration outdoors in winter, and he got sick of the flu. He was also the oldest president at that time. Reagan broke that record, and I think Biden broke that record. You want to notice uh, the, the answer? It's William yeah. Henry... Harrison's and Benjamin Harrison's. William, that is William, right. Hen- William Henry, Henry Harrison's. Uh, yeah, brief period in 1841, serving only 32 days in the office. And grandson. Yeah, yeah, he got pneumonia giving his inauguration speech. And then Benjamin Harrison served only one term. Yep. I want to say 1884, but I'm not sure I remember. No, no, it's very close, very close. 1889 to 1893. Okay. I think he was the president. I don't know. I don't want to say too many more wrong answers, but um, he, he was he was not memorable as a president. Let's put it that way. And there's another uh, two presidents that were not super closely related, but they were related. Like the older one went to the younger one's wedding because they were related. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to that one. Theodore Roosevelt was third cousins, I believe it was, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Oh. And you know, and, and Theodore Roosevelt, while he was president, went to the wedding of Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. So they, they knew each other. Hmm. And then what's another group of presidents that were related to each other? Uh, I'll, I'll give the answer because this is a trick question. Right. Every president is related to every other president except for one. Who is the one president of the United States who is not related to any other president of the I United States? I think I know this. Uh, Trump. No, it's not Martin Trump. Van Buren. Oh wow! Who became president after Andrew Jackson? Actually, because hmm. he was from Dutch descent, and all the other presidents, I guess, are from English descent, including Obama. See, this, so, this, this is a this is an interesting, but I wouldn't say point, but like trivia a little bit. Like, wow, most of the presidents sort of related to each other. Is there something that connect them together or something? Well, other than a secret you know, all of them secretly belonging to the Illuminati that try to control the entire world. Uh, other than that, no, it's just a, most people who have been, you know, whose family has been in the United States for 300 years are related to each other. Mm. And, you know, in some way, and they're not, it's not like they're all cousins. They're all like very distantly related. It's like how, it's how like our, you know, like how 
AJ Jacobs and I apparently are related. Gotcha. You know, if you go to 23andMe uh, or genie.com or whatever, but we don't really know how. Or like, I'm related to Obama through distant marriage. AJ once sent me the way I'm related to Obama and it was like 20 words long. But uh, uh, they're not, no, no, none of the presidents other than the ones I mentioned are closely related. So, so there's one interesting one uh, that's also cousin-ish. James Madison and Zachary Taylor. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, what what are they? So uh, Zachary Taylor, who was James Madison's second cousin, was the 12th president okay. of the United States. I did not know that. I learned something new every day. Yeah. So, but you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he's a bit, you know, Robert F. Kennedy himself was very controversial, but Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is very controversial. You'll hear a lot of that in this podcast. And you guys tell me, you know, what you think afterwards. Should this man be president? I mean- most people who have been president should never have been president. And, you know, well, should we include RFK Jr. in that or not by the end? But here is the podcast. I'm releasing it. You know, he's he's in the news. He's running for president. So his, his voice should be heard. Uh, here is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the podcast, the only podcast I have never, it took me years to release. Do you know one funny incident that happened during the RFK Jr.'s uh, sessions? No. So this was recorded in the stand, in Stand Up New York, the, the the club that you know you used to own. So the yeah. manager there the, is a female manager. She walks in. Yeah. She was wearing this dress. It's a long dress. It's full of Marilyn Monroe's face and the kisses. Oh my god! Yes. So when she show up, we we're like, "Yeah, RFK Junior." is coming on a show. She's really excited. She's like, whoa, this is great because, you know, famous people or whatever. And then she, all of a sudden she gasps and then she realized what she was wearing is the dress that's full of Mary Monroe faces. So she has to run down the stairs and go to the next door, Marshall, and buy a whole new dress in 20 minutes because, you know, that's before he came on the show and, you know, change the shirts and come back up. I did not know that. Yeah. And of course, famously, I mean, the theory is nobody knows for sure, yeah. but we pretty much know for sure. But both John F. Kennedy and it was theorized Robert F. Kennedy had affairs with Marilyn Monroe. Right. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. himself is uh, also, he's married to the, the, the woman who, the actress, uh, Cheryl Hines, who plays Cheryl David, Larry David's wife on the show Curb oh, Your Enthusiasm. I didn't know. And just to bring this around politically, in real life, Larry David's wife left him for former Vice President Al Gore. Oh, what? I didn't know. What? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense, yeah. but connect the dots if you want. And another funny incident. There's a little bit more. This is a little bit more okay. controversial, a little bit. So, because at the comedy club, right? So, we have lots of comedians coming in and out. So, there's yeah. one particular black female comedian just got out of an Uber and she okay. had a bad day. So she was yelling at the... Gotta be Yana Manika Saunders. <laughs> yes. She always yeah. had a bad day. She was yelling at the... One of the funniest comedians. She was yelling at the at the, text, uh, at the Uber driver. She was yelling at everyone. And then she say, F white privileges. And then F Kennedy Jr. just walked out the door and shook her hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yes. God. I wish we had that on video. Do you have that on video? No, no. No, we heard that after the fact, but so we, I, I heard so it. Funny. From, How did you hear that? Did did like someone tell yeah, you? Yeah, someone or? told me. Someone told me that was uh, the funniest well, thing ever. 
Definitely keep these in the intro. And here's Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the man, the myth, the legend, RFK Jr. We hardly know you. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So I have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the podcast. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No, I'm really, I'm really excited. I mean, obviously... You have had so many great achievements, but your your family, of course, which you've written about, is iconic in American history. I really enjoyed your book, uh, 
uh, called American Values, Lessons I Learned from My Family. Just as an aside, I kind of feel this could be, this book could be sort of along the lines of Robert Caro's excellent series on LBJ. You could do many books on your on your family. I mean, you sort of stop in, in, in the early 70s, but you could have kept going there. Yeah, I think there's been well over a thousand books on, on my family. And um, I tried to tell stories that had not been told before. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. There was a lot, like, I've obviously read many of those thousand books about your family, as have many people. And there's been documentaries and movies and so on. And, of course, for anyone who might possibly not know, your uncle, John F. Kennedy, was president of the United States. Your dad, Robert F. Kennedy, who you're named after, was almost president of the United States, was a senator from New York, was attorney general under his brother. I love the quote. You mentioned this. I didn't know this quote until I read it in your book. I love the quote uh, your brother gave when he nominated, you know, it was controversial that he nominated his own brother to be attorney general. And he said, um, I thought my um, brother needed some legal experience before he went into private practice. I thought that was very funny. For why, uh, it was a joke my father did not appreciate, but it was funny nonetheless. Yes. And, and, you know, I learned a lot of things in this book also about the policies of your father and your uncle when he was president. I didn't know, for instance, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about many of these things. I hope you don't mind talking about the, the past as well as things you're currently working on now. Like we're going to, I would like to talk about John sure. F. Kennedy, your father. So, on. so I didn't know in the early parts of his presidency that John F. Kennedy had such a back and forth of personal notes between him and Khrushchev, which sort of puts a different light on the, the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, my, uh, my uh, uncle exchanged 26 letters with Khrushchev. Most of them were handwritten. Um, and it began really kind of, it, it began after they had been in office for a year. And my uncle realized that it, it happened that the first letter was written um, by Khrushchev. We have to go back a little. One of the first things that President Kennedy did when he became president was to arrange a summit with Khrushchev, which, um, which took place in Europe. And my uncle had high hopes going into that summit. The, there were many areas of conflict including Vietnam and Laos, and uh, but also my uncle wanted to end the arms race. And and also in Latin America, there were many um, touch points. So my uncle went to that meeting in Vienna, and Khrushchev met him with this very pugnacious bombast he tried to bully him, to push him around, to lecture him on the history of America and his bad behavior in the world, and and then to say, we dare you to come after us because we will bring this to nuclear annihilation. And my uncle was very shaken up after that meeting. The one thing that he did get out of it was an agreement that allowed him to stay out of Laos, sending 
American troops to Laos. They, they reached a protocol for involving several other nations in, in allowing Laos to have free elections and a, and a government that would be shared by both the communists and the West. My uncle was very shaken up by that meeting and came back and realized that there was no hope of dealing with Castro and that the only way was to basically build our, up our armaments. And then the Berlin crisis happened. And in Berlin, a general called Lucius Clay was trying to provoke the Second World or the Third World War by knocking down the Soviets at that time were hemorrhaging people through, West, through East Berlin. The German population was fleeing to... Berlin was a divided city after World War II. The Russians had conquered half of it. We had met by agreement in the middle, and the Russians controlled half, and we controlled the other half. The same was true of Germany, but Berlin was actually in the communist zone of Germany, and half of Berlin was controlled by the West, half of it was controlled by the by Russia. The eastern part of Berlin, which was um, Russian-controlled, was hemorrhaging. People were trying to get out. Everybody was fleeing. There was a brain drain. There was a money drain. And the Russians were forced to build a wall. And Lucius Clay, who was the general in charge of NATO at that time, believed that, as many of the generals did, that that the United States at that point in history still had a huge nuclear advantage, but the Russians were catching up with us. And the only hope for saving humanity and civilization and democracy was to provoke a war with the Russians immediately, bomb them into annihilation while we still had the uh, nuclear superiority. And in order to do that, Many of the generals were constantly trying to provoke a war that would force President Kennedy to bomb the Russians. And Lucius Clay saw his opportunity. He fastened bulldozer plows to a bunch of tanks, and then he sent the tanks to knock down the wall. The Russians answered by sending a tank division to confront them, and there was a standoff at a section of the wall called Checkpoint Charlie. And the whole world was at that point poised on the brink of full-scale nuclear war. If either side had moved, there could have very well been an exchange of nuclear weapons. President Kennedy sent a note to Khrushchev. He was very frustrated at that time because there was no way for him to talk to Khrushchev directly. There was no hotline at that time. Why not? And because there was, there was no communication between Russia and the United States. We had completely cut off relationships. President Kennedy was shocked about this because he thought he ought to be able to talk to the other leader, and that was a huge disadvantage to the entire planet that they couldn't talk to each other. They had to talk through intermediaries. Not only that, but the CIA knew almost nothing about what was happening in the Kremlin. First of all, the CIA had a mole at that time and every um, spy who appeared in the Kremlin was immediately given up and, um, and executed. So we didn't know anything about what was... The CIA's impression of what was going on in the Kremlin was that it was monolithic, that everybody there kind of agreed with each other, and that they were all bent on world conquest. And in fact, the opposite is true. There was tremendous dissension in the, within the Kremlin 
Khrushchev, who had been a war hero in fighting the Nazis during World War II, he had been at the siege of Stalingrad, which was one of the worst battles in history. He had lived through that. He hated Stalin. Stalin, in the end, was trying to purge him. And he, you know, when he came in, he denounced Stalin. And he did not want to go to war with the United States. He was very much against it. But like President Kennedy, he was surrounded in the Kremlin by war hawks. But neither of them could communicate with each other. So he sent a note to, um, a communication to Khrushchev at that time, asking them to back down and promising him that if he backed down, that President Kennedy would back down immediately. Khrushchev sent him a note saying, my back is at a precipice. I cannot move. And the, the subtext of that note was he wanted to move. He didn't want to go to war, but he was surrounded by political forces, military and intelligence apparatus that would not allow him to back down. They came to a secret agreement with each other that, that Khrushchev would pull some of the tanks and that President Kennedy then would be able to order Lucius Clay to back down. And that's what happened, and President Kennedy kept his word. That cemented a bond of trust between the two of them, and immediately after that confrontation, which was in 62, Khrushchev wrote the first of his letters. And he did not want to send his letters through diplomatic channels. Normally, the premier would send a letter through the embassy, which would then deliver it to the White House. But he didn't want to do that because he knew his intelligence and military apparatus would read the letter and then report to each other, and he wanted the letter to remain secret. So he gave the letter to a man he trusted, who was a GRU spy named Georgie Bolshakoy. And Georgie Bolshakoy was the Washington bureau chief for the GRU, for the, for the major, like the KGB, the major intelligence agency in Russia. He was a very charming man, and he had become friends with my mother and father, much to the horror of the State Department. Right, you mentioned in the book he would essentially play with you and your siblings Yeah, he played with us when we were kids. He taught us how to do. He was, he was kind of squat, but he was very strong. And he could do that Cossack dancing, squatting on his haunches. He would do that. He also could do rope climbing. And we had a lot of ropes in our house from the trees. And we always had contests to see who could climb them. And he could climb them with his legs sticking out. He would play with us. He would do athletic competitions with my father. He was always laughing, and he was very cheerful, and they loved having him around. Oh, the State Department and the CIA hated it because our house was a, really a satellite White House, and I, the house was filled with top-secret documents that my father would bring home every night. And so they didn't like it that a, that a Soviet spy was essentially welcome at the house, but Khrushchev trusted Bolshevik and gave him the first of those letters. Bolshevik smuggled it in a New York Times, folded it in the New York Times, and he handed the New York Times copy to Pierre Salinger. Pierre Salinger gave it to my uncle, and it was a very beautiful letter where he wrote the letter from his uh, dacha, which was his vacation home on the Black Sea, and he described the environment starting out, and then 
It essentially was an apology for what had happened in Vienna. And he said, I know that when you came to Vienna, you had high expectations of resolving the Cold War. And he said, the world also had expectations that we would do that. And he essentially says, although he doesn't come out and say it, because of my attitude, that did not happen. And the tone of the letter was, I want to make it happen now, and we need to do this together. And my uncle wrote him back from Hyannisport a couple of weeks later, and at the time, we were playing around him, and he describes us on his lawn, and he says, I'm looking at these children who are my children and their cousins and thinking of what right do we have because of a political dispute that we don't have the intelligence to solve to destroy these children who have nothing to do with it and all the other children on the globe who are innocent because we have been failures as leaders and we need to figure out a way to bring the Cold War to an end. They ended up over the next year and a half, 18 months before my uncle was killed, exchanging 26 of those letters. And in the end, that exchange of letter ended up with a nuclear test plan treaty, which was probably one of the greatest accomplishments of President Kennedy's administration. Um, they jammed that treaty through without consulting the State Department. They went right to the American public, and they found enormous support for it, even in the right-wing enclaves like, like Utah. Um, and, they, um, and they were able to railroad Congress and the State Department and, every, and the military to accept the test ban treaty. Khrushchev then sent a, last, a final letter to my uncle saying, um, let's right now... Um, cut our military dramatically. Um, let's put our production capacity instead of producing weapons. Let's produce food for people. Let's produce um, educational materials. Let's stop competing militarily and let's start competing in a way that will benefit all of humanity. And he wanted to um, go to the moon together, which my uncle agreed on, and, uh, and to end the Cold War. And my uncle was killed. That letter was never delivered to him. It was it was captured by the State Department and never given to him. And immediately after my uncle was killed, when after my uncle was killed, Khrushchev walked around his dacha for three days in tears, and he never really recovered from the shock. And he was deposed shortly after that for, um, you know, for trying to make peace with the United States. And he was replaced by Brezhnev and Kosygin and all the others who were part of that military-industrial complex. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. Would you say that, you know, starting with with your uncle and then, and also with, with your father, that... There's an almost Kennedy doctrine, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll try to summarize it in like two points. One, that the role of government is to help people who cannot help themselves. And number two, on uh, in terms of foreign policy, not use American power as a police force, but help countries achieve the same level of development and democracy that America has, as opposed to the many times governments have been overthrown because they were maybe against U.S. interests, which is which is not exactly the same as saying, <laughs> let's support countries, whether they're for or against America, that they have the same kind of philosophy of democracy and so on. Yeah, I think my uncle was not an isolationist at all. He was the opposite of an isolationist, but he, was, he did not believe that the military, he believed it was the least optimal option to use the military as a foreign policy tool. And we should not be engaged in overthrowing governments, fixing elections, murdering foreign leaders, or any of the things that the CIA was then involved in. My uncle did not know about the assassination programs, but he would have been horrified if he did. And he was, it was years, it was almost a decade before America and even President Johnson learned of the extent of those programs. Why did they all keep... CIA director Dulles around. Well, and, my uncle and, fired Dulles. And, uh, but but initially, like, why didn't he fire him, like, the second he came he in office? He fired him. Well, he did. He fired him immediately after the Bay of Pigs, which mm. was, you know, the moment he came into office. Mm. And he fired Bissell and he fired Cabell, who were the, you know, the but, – but the entire infrastructure of the CIA at that time was a very secretive – they were extremely dishonest. They did not believe that they had a duty to tell the truth to, the, to an American president. And particularly the, um, the clandestine divisions um, were um, a government to themselves. You know, they created the Vietnam War. They, you know, they were, well, they, they created problems all over the world. They overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran. In 1954, um, Mohammed Mossadegh, the first democratic government Iran in 4,000-year history of that country, and we were supposed to be supporting democracy around the world. But Mossadegh threatened to nationalize the oil companies, and Eisenhower and Dulles, Dulles who had worked for the oil industry before coming into office, overthrew them. The following year, they overthrew Jacob Arbenz in um, Guatemala. Again, the, the most democratic government ever elected in Latin American history because Arbenz 
was trying to nationalize 80% of the arable land in the country was um, controlled by United Fruit, who kept the land fallow and people out of work in order to keep labor costs low and to keep the price of bananas high. So they deliberately were undermining the interests of Guatemala and our bands nationalized that and offered, incidentally, offered to pay the fair market value of that land to United Fruit. United Fruit refused because they determined the, our bands determined the fair market value based upon what United Fruit had been claiming the land was worth while it was paying taxes over the previous 20 years. And they claimed the land was only worth $16 million. And but when they threatened to nationalize it, they said, no, it's worth $160 million. Our Ben said, well, you've been saying, when you talk, talk to our tax department, you've been saying it's only worth $16 million, so that's what we're offering you. Um, and Dulles had been the attorney for United Fruit, so as a favor to the company, he overthrew the government of our bands. And he did this all over the world. There were over 100 coup attempts by the CIA, and the rest of the world knew this, although Americans who were very idealistic did not believe that their government was involved in these kind of nefarious circumstances. Um, my, uh, my grandfather, Joseph Kennedy, sat on a commission by um, President Truman, which which looked at the CIA's conduct, and my grandfather recommended the abolishment of the plans division, which is the secret clandestine division of the CIA, and said these kids were running around the world doing things that nobody knew they were doing and you know, getting into mischief and giving a bad name to our country. And the blowback from those um, activities was distorting all of the of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, my grandfather made a speech in 1947 called Fortress America saying we should use our military to make America too expensive to conquer. We should fortify our shoreline. We should um, fortify ourselves at home. But, but, and he quoted John Adams, John Quincy Adams, we should not, which is something that Jefferson and Adams and Washington all believe. We should not be going abroad looking for monsters to slay. We should wish other nations who experiment with democracy our best. We should give them our prayers, our best wishes, our aid, if that was appropriate. Uh, we should not help them militarily. So bringing that, again, let's say calling that the this Kennedy doctrine on, on foreign policy, bringing that into the current day and age, how do you think uh, we should be behaving differently or are we doing things or are there some things we're doing well? Like, what do you think of Trump, for instance, uh, shaking hands with the leader of North Korea, which seems like something your uncle John F. Kennedy would have, would have done. I, I actually think that's a good thing. I think we ought to be meeting and talking with foreign leaders. What I don't believe is that, what I think is really bad for our country is the, the fact that we're using the military as the principal foreign policy tool, and that we now have 668 bases, military bases in countries all over the world. And you know what my grandfather said, and what my uncle understood, and what generations of the of you know the, what the founders also understood is you can't be an imperial nation abroad and be a democracy at home. 
uh, you become a national security state, uh, you become a garrison state. And, you know, the reason that you and I, when we travel, have to go through an X-ray machine is because we've screwed up our foreign policy. Hmm. The reason the World Trade Center got bombed is because we put troops in American troops in Saudi Arabia, and it offended the religious sensibilities of, you know, radical people who live there, including Osama bin Laden. And the United States then had a target on it, and we became the enemy. Why should we be sending troops to Saudi Arabia to protect a, one of the worst dictatorships in the world, a dictatorship that jails women for driving a car, that makes them wear veils in public, that won't give them human rights, one of the most oppressive regimes in the world, that teaches its children and children all over the world in madras schools to hate our country? Why are we going in there to protect their government and putting a military base there and alienating their population? All of the burdens of becoming a national security state, you know, are all direct result of blowback from bad foreign policy errors that our leaders have made over the past 30 years and principally that the CIA and the intelligence agencies not, you know, they look at a country like Iran and say, we can fix this by, you know, getting rid of the leader. And what happens, we've now had a 50-year battle with Iran that's cost our nation enormously. We had a hostage crisis. We've had war after war after war, and that's not good for our country. Why don't we, and my, my grandfather believed this, and if you look at the writings of great historians like David Kennedy from Yale has no relationship to my family, but you know he's written an, this extraordinary analysis of why empires fail. And every time they do the same thing, they overextend themselves militarily in other countries. It it hollows out and destroys their economy at home, and that that's how they all fail. Well, that's exactly what we're doing. We're not, you know, why is it? We, are, we used to have the best educational system in the world in this country. We paid for people, you know, the veterans, the, the, um, we paid for all of our military personnel, and most students in this country could go to school virtually for free to higher education. We have the most educated population in the world. That's what made America strong. Now, a child has to bankrupt himself to get a college education do, permanently. Do you, think, do you think those two things are related, of though? Of course they are. We've hollowed out the middle class in this country in order to pay for these military adventures abroad. If we, The cost of a B-52 bomber is you can build 130 schools. We pay for, I mean, a B, for you know a stealth bomber, you can build 600 schools for. Why do we need a stealth bomber? The thing that makes America strong is a strong economy. And ultimately, it's an illusion to think, and, you know, the Iraq, we saw this. We thought, you know, we had a President Bush who thought we're going to roll into Iraq. We'll be there. It'll be what he called, quote, a piece of cake, because he thought we have the strongest military in the world. And they exposed it. That the military over there was not what... Our military was next to useless over there. Yeah, we could roll through the country in three days. And you have 20 years of war that follow. And, you know, total destabilization in the Mideast, the creation of ISIS, which was a direct result of our invasion of Iraq. 
you know, all these other problems that we have in the Middle East are a direct result of our military interventions. Why can't we just stay out of it? We can say, look, we're going to protect Israel, and we sign a treaty with Israel that everybody knows about it. If you attack Israel, you're attacking us. And that that's completely permissible. But we don't have to put bases in all of those countries and basically create a foreign policy around, you know, our oil interests, the interests of oil contract companies, which, by the way, is destroying the planet. It's like if we put a tiny fraction of that money into building transmission systems here at home that could carry wind and solar power, we got it for three trillion dollars. We completely rewire this country and get and decarbonize it, so we don't need oil anymore. So we're creating clean energy for the rest of the globe. That's what that would be the best national security choice to to build solar energy and get us off the deadly addiction of oil, so we don't have to have anything to do with these sheiks who are who hate democracy who are despised by their own people, who won't let women drive a car. Why, why do we want to be defending those systems over there? I agree. I think this, the dependence on oil, particularly Middle Eastern oil, has skewed all of our relationships there. And I'm not a scientist. I don't really know all the history. I do know solar power to some extent and wind power and some of these other renewables do get subsidized while the technology increases and and the technology will get there. Well, the subsidies to oil and coal today are a thousand times the subsidies to wind and solar. Well, what about nuclear, You can though? build... Well, you, look, here's the math. Today, you can build a utility-scale solar plant in this country for a billion dollars a gigawatt. The cost of building a new coal plant is five billion a gigawatt. And then, once you build the solar plant, it's free energy forever because the photons are hitting the earth every day for free. There's no fuel cost. Once you build that coal plant, now the big cost begins because now you've got to go cut down the Appalachian Mountains, ship it across the country in rail yards, poison, you know, coal, coal burning power plants cost $350 billion a year in healthcare costs for Americans and make us sick as hell. Oh, and those are all part of the cause of coal. Okay, now a gas plant, cost about from four to six billion dollars for a, for a dual turbine gas plant. Again, it's six times what we'd be paying for wind or solar. And again, we have to now pay for the gas and you know we're bringing that in we're, we're sharing, now we can produce it here, but it's still it's poisoning the planet and you have to pay for the gas forever. You don't have to pay for wind and solar because it's all free. We could give our country, and then nuke is the most ridiculous calculation. The last nuclear power plant built was $9 billion a gigawatt. And then you have to store the waste for 30,000 years, which is five times the length of recorded human history. Oh, it makes, that is an absurd, I mean, we could create energy in this country by burning prime rib. Why would you use the most expensive and inefficient ways of doing it to create an energy system in our country. The only reason to do that is because the guys who are making money on those systems own our government. If we were acting rationally, if we had true free market capitalism, 
and we would be using wind and solar, and we wouldn't be using any carbon-based fuel. So, so it's interesting. So, government government's always going to be influenced one way or the other, and but like you say, free market capitalism will will kind of um, direct things in 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 the right ways. Like maybe a switch from oil to these alternatives or or other choices. You know, less. Uh, military involvements overseas and, and and so on. Obviously, the U.S. is set up as a or supposed to be set up as a capitalist society. What do you think is the best way to to move us in that direction now? The best way is to get money out of government. That's the only thing that'll work. You got to get money out of the political process, and then we can have true free market capitalism. And if you want a clean environment, you have true free market capitalism. Why is that? Because a true free market promotes it. And we don't have free market capitalism in this country. We have corporate crony capitalism. We have, you know, the same kind of capitalism, essentially, that they have in China. It's a merger of state and corporate power and a reward system to, you know, cronies of, of people in political power, people who pay off the politicians. So but a, true free market, a true free market promotes efficiency. And efficiency means the elimination of waste. Pollution is waste. A true free market would require us to properly value our natural resources, and it's the chronic undervaluation of those resources that causes us to use them wastefully. In a true free market capitalism, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. What polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. They raise standards of living for themselves by lowering quality of life for everybody else. So and they do that by escaping the discipline of the free market. If we, in a true free market, what we need is a true free market. A true free market rewards good behavior, which is efficiency, and punishes bad behavior, which is inefficiency and waste. We have a system that is rewarding inefficiency and corruption and punishing efficiency. So what would be the first, like, three steps to get there? All you need is one step. Get rid of the Citizens United case and ban corporate money in politics and, and have the same system that other democracies in the world have, which is to limit the amount of the control that wealthy people and large corporations have over our politicians by banning donations by them. This is really important because one thing— And there's a million ways to do that, by the way. You can have publicly financed elections. Well, okay, so let me ask you about this, because there are many candidates who don't have money, don't have resources, and yet have good values and would be good elected officials. And then there are many self-funded candidates, like billionaires and so on, who they don't need to worry about corporations donating to them because they have the money. They could self-fund their campaigns. How do you kind of level the playing field there? Well, you, there's a million ways to do it. I, I'm not going to suggest a system— because all these other nations, the European nations and Canada, all have systems that work. We just have to choose one. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, publicly funded campaigns is one of those. You, you get your campaign publicly funded, but that means you can, it limits the amount of money that you can put in. Oh, if you're an individual who's very wealthy, you can, then um, you don't get any of that publicly funded. You don't get any of that public funding. You can still run. And this is one way to do it. 
Another way would just be to, to you know, ban personal contributions at all. I would say the, the fair way that is the easier lift in this country would be to allow wealthy people to run, but they spend their own. Once you surpass a certain threshold, then you, um, you're on your own and you're not entitled to any publicly funding. You got to go all the way on your own dime. That's a disincentive to do it. And, you know, it, it makes it so that you, you're allowed to use your money to run for political office, but you still have a fair system, a relatively fair system. Again, like, you know, you're... you're Incidentally, on. we had a system, you know, this happened to our country in the 1880s and 1890s where corporations took over our government. And they literally, you know, at that time, there wasn't a direct election of U.S. senators. The senators were chosen by the legislatures. The legislatures were literally owned by... You know, these big trusts, Standard Oil, the Sugar Trust, the Steel Trust, all of them had, uh, and the Railroad Trust, interlocking boards with the same guys on them, the, you know, Carnegie's and the Morgan's and the Frick's and the Rockefeller's. And they were literally trading the state legislatures with, um, as chess pawns. We had essentially a peaceful revolution in this country where you had movements, you had an agrarian room, movement, the progressive movement, which was liberal, you had a the uh, or populist movement. The populist movement was agrarian. The progressive movement was in the cities, um, and they joined together. You had uh, labor and and women's movements and women's suffrage movements, and then you had these great journalists, these muckraking journalists like Ida Tarbell and Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis and many many others who were exposing the corruption of the trust. And then you had one really strong leader, um, which was Teddy Roosevelt. And and they, you know, in those first years of the 20th century, we passed all of this legislation that was designed to restore democracy in the country. We passed the first labor laws, the first child labor laws, the, um, the first laws that created the five-day work week, so you couldn't work people seven days a week. Um, we uh, minimum wage laws for the first time. Most importantly, we passed a graduated income tax and corporate income taxes. So wealthy people and corporations, before that, they didn't pay. They paid the same income tax if you were Rockefeller as a guy who was laboring, you know, a, a bricklayer. Al Rockefeller had to pay his part of the, you know, of, of paying for the national well-being, you know, which we're paying for him. The roads all benefited him, the railroads, et cetera. He now had to pay his share, and corporations had to pay their share. We passed the Sherman Antitrust Act. Oh, so it allowed Roosevelt and other presidents to go after and to break up these trusts, to take away some of the political power. And we passed the direct election of senators and, and we gave women the vote and did a lot of other things that restored democracy. And then, of course, we had the New Deal, which was a continuation of that process where we started giving power to labor unions to counterbalance the enormous power that corporations had in our society. And we really had this extraordinary democracy by the end of World War II that was the model for the world. And it initiated a period that is now known as the Great Prosperity, the, the biggest, the longest um, 
bout of prosperity in the history of the world. We created the American middle class. We had people, working people, going to college, owning their own homes, owning their automobiles, owning, and, and you didn't have these huge gaps between rich or poor. Those were essentially banned. We had a 90% income tax. When my uncle was elected president, last year of Eisenhower's presidency, we had a 90% income tax in this country. What that meant is you couldn't have you know, people like Bill Gates and these, you know, these super ultra billionaires who now are turning America into this kind of, you know, this old style aristocracy, which is really just a, it's no longer democracy. It's a corporate kleptocracy and it's not good for anybody. You know, just speaking of, of Bill Gates, what do you think of his efforts on charity and his, you know, the pledge that, you know, that he spreads to get all billionaires to you know, donate at least half of their money to, to charity. And he's certainly done a lot for malaria in, in Africa and, and solved some huge problems. I, I think Bill Gates has done more harm to the planet than probably anybody, mm. arguably anybody in history. Mm. And, you know, I, 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 because, and a lot of it is just misguided. I don't think it's deliberate. But I think, the, you know, the programs that he's had in Africa are programs that, have the illusion of applying technology to solve health problems. And, you know, what we really need in Africa is economic development. That's what solves health problems. You can't give people, you know, they, there's just been a, a huge study by the Danish governments um, that is called Morgison and all that shows that the DPT vaccine, which Gates has been giving to every child in Africa, is the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine that is actually killing far more children, mainly girls, but far more children than diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis combined. In fact, the vaccinated kids have 10 times the death rate as unvaccinated kids. And that's Bill Gates. That's millions and millions of children dead. Oh, I think he thinks he's doing a good job. He's basically made a pact with the pharmaceutical industry and he is following their lead and he believes, you know, I think he has this belief that um, you can get health in a syringe, good health, and it's an illusion. When you look at the science, it has been catastrophic and it's been catastrophic for Africa. He's taken the cheap way out by giving vaccines to African children that are loaded with mercury and aluminum, two of the most neurotoxic elements in the universe. In fact, mercury is the most neurotoxic element in the universe that is not radioactive, that is known to human beings. And he's giving mega doses of that to every child in Africa from the day of birth. And it's destroying an entire generation. What about though, like let's say the, the measles vaccine, which is as pretty much eliminated measles in, in Africa, as far as we could tell. I mean, again, oh, I'm not a scientist. Oh, it hasn't eliminated measles in Africa. It, you know, measles is still kills lots of people in Africa. You can say the measles vaccine, we have a measles vaccine in this country, but measles used to kill back in the 19, early 1900s, it used to kill a lot of Americans. Um, by 1960, everybody in this country was affected by measles. There was 4 million measles cases a year, but there was only 400 people dying. Uh, your chance of dying of measles if you caught it, uh, if, if your chance of dying of measles was one in 500,000. 
The 400 kids who died were almost all badly malnourished. We now know that if you give a child vitamin A, that it's almost impossible to die from measles. So the measles vaccine, we don't know. The, the decline in measles had occurred prior to 1963, prior to the introduction of the vaccine. 98% of the measles decline was prior to the introduction of the vaccine, and it had to do with sanitation, with nutrition, with chlorinated water, um, and with other engineering developments. It had nothing to do with vaccines. It's not me saying this. This is CDC who says this. There's a CDC study that says vaccination had less than 1% effect on the decline of these infectious diseases. I know it's a mythology to say that it cured polio and smallpox and measles, et cetera, but it's just not true. Now, the well, problem, why, why, do, why do you think so many people disagree with that. And again, I don't want to make Why this... do they disagree with it? Because like... I think the pharmaceutical industry is making money and people are not listening to the science. People don't let people... People don't let informed debate. Now, let, let me just tell you about the measles vaccine. The MMR vaccine, which is the current... Which is a Merck product, in order to get that monopoly... They have a monopoly in this country. In order to get that monopoly, they had to show FDA and to keep... Glaxo, Glaxo has a competitive product. They wanted to keep that Glaxo out. And FDA said, well, in order to do that, you need to show us that each component of the va that vaccine has 95% efficacy. So the measles portion, the mumps portion, and the rubella. Merck could not get anywhere near 95% on the mumps portion. They could only get 69%. Uh, they ordered their top two scientists, John Kralin and Joanna Washkowitz, to take antibodies from rabbits and put them in the human blood vials and hand those to FDA and lie to them. And that's how they got the vaccine. That's how they got it. And that's the vaccine that we're giving to our kids today. And what it means is that the vaccine will protect you against mumps for five or six years. But then you become vulnerable again. You don't have any antibodies. And that's why we're seeing mumps outbreaks in college-age kids, in prisoners, in military personnel who are fully vaccinated. People are all upset because there were 700 measles cases this year, but there were 9,200 mumps cases. We have a mumps epidemic in this country right now, and it's not among young kids. Mumps is harmless to young kids. It's something, it was part of it, it was a, uh, it was just a rite of passage of childhood. It was a mild self-limiting disease. That's a quote from CDC. Every child was expected to give it, and I get it, and when you got it, you got lifetime immunity. What you don't want is to have mumps when you pass puberty, because it can shrink male gonads, and it can sterilize both males and females. Now we have mumps epidemics all over this country in adults are having the same thing in measles because the measles vaccine wanes. Within 20 years of getting that vaccine, 30% of the people no longer have immunity. That's dangerous because it means mothers are not passing immunity to babies and older people and very young people are getting measles and those are the ages you don't want to get them. Oh. You know, we, and it, we, those are some of the issues with that vaccine. It's much more complex than people present it as. 
This is an argument that people ought to have. I ought to be able to sit on this show opposite a doctor or a scientist and have this discussion in a civil way. But this discussion never occurs in the media because this discussion is banned on social media. It's banned on the internet, and we can't publish articles about it. Why do you think, I mean, and again, I don't mean to make this because you're right, I'm I'm not a doctor, I don't know. But why do you think there's such dissent? Like your 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 you know, two of your siblings wrote an article even saying vaccines are necessary, herd immunity is necessary, you know, and they specifically mention you as kind of the opposite, saying the opposite of them. Why do you think there's this dissent even among your own I, family? I, I think it's orchestrated dissent at people that there's an orthodoxy that has been manufactured by pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry, four companies are making $50 billion a year on the 72 vaccines that are now mandated for our children. Now, if you look at the history of that, when I was a kid, I got three vaccines and I was fully compliant. And there was not, you know, outbreaks of hepatitis B and, and you know, and rotavirus that were killing lots of Americans. We didn't even know what those were. Oh, in 1986, Congress made it illegal to sue a vaccine company. So no matter today, no matter how negligent that company is, no matter how um, grievous your injury is, no matter how toxic the components of the va that vaccine, you cannot sue them for your injuries. Oh, these companies have zero incentive to make those vaccines safe, but they did have an incentive to make more vaccines because suddenly you have a product where there's no marketing required and no advertising because it's mandated for 76 million kids and it's very high margins. There's no liability. Not only that, so you can injure people, you can kill and injure as many people as you want and nobody can sue you. There's no consequence. Not only that, but most people don't know this, they don't have to do the safety testing. Oh, it's the only medical product that doesn't have to be safety tested. Why is that? It's an artifact that, that CDC used to be called the Public Health Agency, which was a quasi-military agency. That's why people at CDC have military ranks, like Surgeon General, et cetera. The vaccine program was conceived as a, on a national security defense against a biological attack on our country. They wanted to make it that if the Russians attacked us with anthrax or a biological agent, we could immediately get a lot of vaccines out to them. We could develop them, manufacture them, and deploy them quickly. So they wanted to get rid of the regulatory impediments. So they said, if we call it a medicine, you need to test it for safety first. We don't want to do that because that takes years. So we're going to call it a biologic, and then we wanted to test it. So you have something that's not tested, safety tested, that is not um, it's not a single of the 72 vaccines has ever been tested against a placebo. None of them. They're, they have no liability. So there's no incentive to make them safe. And you have a, a mandated audience. Now, these four companies that make them are serial criminals. Over the last 10 years, Merck, Sanofi, Pfizer, and Glaxo have paid $35 billion in penalties and fines and damages for their other medical products, you know, they, and they, for, for defrauding regulators, for falsifying science, for lying to the public, for killing hundreds of thousands of people. Vioxx alone, which is one, another Merck product, killed 120,000 people. It was a pill 
that Merck was selling, telling people it was a headache pill, and they knew it caused heart attacks. They knew they were going to kill half a million people. They didn't tell anybody. They sold it anyway. Now, what kind of cognitive dissonance does it require for us to believe that the company that will do that kind of behavior with that one medical, with all their other medical products, when it comes to vaccines where there's no liability, there's no chance they'll ever get caught, that they suddenly find Jesus and they're not doing it there. Well, I can tell you they are. And the problem is they control the press. They spend $25 billion a year on, on direct consumer promotions and doctor promotions. So they're giving the networks $9 billion. They're the biggest advertisers for the, for the evening news. And Anderson Cooper is sponsored by Pfizer. Aaron Burnett is sponsored by Pfizer. Lester Holt is sponsored by Merck. You think that they're going to have a bad story about vaccines, which are the biggest products? And what happened is, because they, because they passed that law in 86, by 1989, they started, there was a gold rush. And they went from, you know, the three vaccines that I have to the 72 vaccines that kids have to get today. And suddenly, beginning in 1989, you saw this explosion of chronic disease in this country. Oh, why is it that I had 11 brothers and sisters and I had, you know, over 50 cousins? I did not, a single one of them have food allergies. And my kids, I have seven kids, and they all have allergies. Why is it that, that all of these things appeared in 1989? Food allergies, asthma exploded. Autism went from 1 in 2,500 to 1 in 34 kids today. ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, which we never heard of. Tourette's syndrome, never heard of it. Autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, juvenile diabetes. Nobody knew about these things. Rheumatoid arthritis. All of them began in 1989, the year. So something happened environmental in 89. So let, let me ask this because I know I want to respect your time and and we've covered so many different issues, but I always want to get back to this idea that your your family almost philosophically has kind of stayed consistent about their principles and their influence. In the '60s, obviously, your uncle and your brother had a lock on the political system. You know, the last question: Why aren't you or any of your cousins or what siblings, whatever. Why aren't any of you president? <laughs> like what's, what, why, why has there been, you know, you're all statesmen, you're all have an influence. Why isn't anybody kind of- I think people just running? did different things with their lives. And, you know, I think I, there's a whole new generation of Kennedys that are coming up. All of them are interested in politics and public service. You know, almost everybody, I say most of the people in my family are in public service. Many of them have been in politics. Um, I have a nephew now who, you know, Joe Kennedy, who we're all very proud of, who is a congressman from Massachusetts. My brother was in Congress. My sister was lieutenant governor of Maryland. I have another cousin, Patrick, who was in Congress. Um, so a lot of our family has remained in politics. and We're all involved in politics. I do what I do because I love what I'm doing. So... Thank you for having me. Well, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thanks for coming on the, the podcast, and I really enjoyed your book, American Values, and all of your writings and so on. 
Thank so, you very much. Thanks I, so much for coming People out. can follow me on Instagram. And that's what I would recommend and hope for. Thank what, you. What's your Instagram uh, handle? It's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. All right. Thanks. thanks. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.